the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Lee Hines, Boston and Bird in Atlanta. On Rio Plus 20, the United Nations Conference on Sustainable Development. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. I'm Steve Bursler of LexisNexis. With me is Lee DeHines, Senior Counsel in Austin and Bird's Atlanta, Georgia office. Mr. DeHines is a member of the firm's Environmental and Land Development Group and is co-chair of the group's climate and sustainability team. He concentrates on regulatory and defensive litigation matters, including climate change, corporate compliance, white-collar criminal defense, air quality, hazardous waste, wetlands and water quantity and quality matters for industrial and municipal clients. He was chair of the American Bar Association's Section of Environment, Energy and Resources in 2007 and 2008, and is a Section of Environment, Energy, and Resources Delegate to the ABA House of Delegates. Mr. DeHines, thank you for your time. It's a pleasure to welcome you to this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. Pleasure to be here as well. Rio Plus 20 was held in June of 2012. You led the ABA delegation that attended the event. Uh, What were some of your impressions? Well, I went there as the uh, chair of the American Bar Association delegation. We had five of us in attendance. And the reason the ABA went was we have been focusing on sustainable development as an organization for a number of years. We passed a resolution in the ABA House back in 2003 uh, supporting the concept of sustainable development. And so our goal in going there was to look at it from the viewpoint of, of lawyers within the American Bar Association to see how the policy cultural, political issues could be viewed through the lens of lawyers, really looking to see how the rule of law across the globe supports sustainable development. So from that standpoint, I was extremely impressed with the conference. You know, there were some 45,000 people there or something like that, many heads of states, ministers, and I thought the dialogue amongst all the parties was well considered. Everybody was very serious. Secretary General of the UN, Mr. Ban Ki-moon, said that uh, sustainable development was his number one priority as Secretary General. And so when someone of that uh, serious nature says something like that, I I take him at his word. And I thought that the uh, document that they produced at the end of the conference was well done. And the criticisms made of the conference that I've read in media reports since and while I was there, too, I heard there was criticism because there were various protests going on, was that these are just words on paper and that unless the members of the U.N., the governments across the globe, don't make commitments to implement what they have previously agreed to in 1992 and 2002 in the prior conferences, then this is a waste of time. Talk about the agreement that was reached by world leaders at the end of the conference involving sustainable development. The agreement was... There were two themes for the conference. One was green economy, a green economy in the context of sustainable development, and coupled with that, something called poverty eradication. Then the other was the creation of an institutional framework for sustainable development. Green economy means do economic development in a way that is protective of the environment, 
so that there's clean water, clean air, available food. Poverty eradication meant do the economy not only in a way that's environmentally sustainable, but provide a way so that folks who are not capable of having a job in the economy, that they are included in this new world economy. And then the institutional framework was conceptually an idea that, okay, once we agree to all of these principles as to how we get to a green economy, then institutional frameworks is something that has to be then embedded in each and every country around the world, as well as, obviously, in all international agreements, because, you know, given where the economy is these days, uh, everything is global. An example, I flew U.S. Airways down to Rio de Janeiro from the United States. Mm -hmm. On my flight, I was served a little container of peaches. On the container of peaches, it says, grown in Greece, packaged in Thailand, by Dole Foods, and then served to me on a U.S. Airways flight while I was in the air. We were already over Brazil uh, because it was about an hour before we landed. It was breakfast on the way in. We arrived in the morning. And so that's an amazing thing to me. I mean, it's a, it's a small example. I mean, you know, what did the peaches cost? But, you know, in order to produce something in Greece, package it in Thailand, sell it to Dole, ship it to the United States, and have it served to me flying over South America tells me that we really do have a global economy. And so all sorts of issues are in play with respect to a product like that. And so was that produced as part of a green economy? Were the people who were doing the work to grow the product, package the product, uh, label it, et cetera, were they all being paid a sustainable wage? Were they left impoverished given that the cost, how much my, how much of my airfare went towards the cost of paying for those peaches? It couldn't have been a lot. The agreement that was put together, I think, is a well-worded agreement. It's full of uh, agreements that we will do this, we will do that. I mean, again, this is a U.N. conference, so the document that's agreed to is a, a document of the United Nations. The only people who get to vote on the document are member countries of the United Nations. So it's not a worldwide document that everybody in the world got a chance to actually vote on. There was a year-long process where lots of non-government organizations and private parties had a chance to weigh in on discussions about what ought to be in the document. But at the end of the day, the document was a U.N. document approved by members of the U.N. I think it's an excellent document in terms of what it commits to do. And prior to the conference, everyone who was a student of this area said that the proof of whether it was a success, it will not be not come on June 23rd, the day after the conference ends, but in time to see whether all the commitments that were made will really be done. You know, when you talk about the, the worldwide reach of all of this, I imagine there have got to be some legal implications that companies need to be aware of when doing business in other countries to support new sustainable development initiatives sent by the UN, right? Of course. And you know, a lot of that's in play already. You may or may not be familiar with the terminology corporate social responsibility or CSR. A number of U.S.-based and, and uh, internationally-based countries, multinational corporations, have corporate sustainability as something that is a, a mantra of theirs, corporate social responsibility. There's the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, which companies vie to get on and be ranked high in so that people who are interested in investing in green companies want to invest in the folks that Dow Jones system has rated as being high. A number of corporations, in addition to annual reports, prepare and publish their sustainability reports separate and apart from their annual report. And so a lot is being done and has been done to ensure that sustainable development, green economy, green manufacturing, 
social responsibility around the globe uh, is done in a way that really is uh, meaningful. And corporations, regardless of where they are based, when they are manufacturing anywhere in the world, many corporations will say, I will take the most stringent standards in the, most, in the country where they apply, where they originated, and then use those wherever I manufacture around the world. So in the U.S., I can't pollute to X amount, but in some other country where they don't have those laws, I'll just go ahead and pollute the heck out of the environment. They don't do that, and that's all part of their commitment to sustainability or their commitment to corporate social responsibility. So a lot is already being done by the private sector. There are numerous corporations represented there. I visited, for example, the BMW Pavilion, where they're looking at their automobiles of tomorrow that are electric-powered automobiles, and uh, you know they see that as the way of the future for them. So there are a lot, there's a lot that's already been done in the private sector. One of the things the UN touted as part of the conference was all the voluntary commitments to sustainable activity that have been made as part of the Rio Plus 20 conference. And that, by voluntary commitments, it means that organizations that are not UN organizations are voluntarily moving forward to do something with respect to sustainable development. And when you total up all of the dollars associated with those voluntary commitments, I saw one report there in the vicinity of $5 billion worth of voluntary commitments to do things that are you know, committed to uh, sustainable development. Here in the U.S., of course, fracking has been a hot-button issue. What impact do you think this will have on regulations for, for hydraulic fracturing drilling firms? There's a lot, obviously, there's been a lot of focus on that already in the media, in Congress, and in um, EPA, U.S. EPA's responsibilities. And I mean, I think fracking is a good example of if you kind of step back and say, okay, from a national energy policy perspective, is it good for the United States to have its own energy supply that is sort of homegrown in order to lessen our dependence on sources that are derived from outside the United States? I think most people would say, yeah, that's a good idea. But when you go about exploring for any material that is below the earth's surface, you have to do it in a way that's environmentally sound and sustainable. And so the, the real question for fracking or any other kind of manufacturing is going to be whether the continuation of those activities by any company involved in it are done in a way that is both protective of the environment, but in a way that is also economically beneficial to those people who receive the benefits of that energy. I mean, my understanding is, I've been reading recently that for the first time in history, perhaps, the United States is now a global net exporter of energy because we've got so much natural gas that's coming from the fracking that's going all over the United States that the fracking, you know, the gas coming from the fracking process now allows us to have natural gas that we can both use in the United States as well as sell overseas. So rather than having LNG terminals built in the U.S. to bring natural gas onshore, we're building LNG terminals to ship natural gas offshore. From an economic standpoint, that sounds good to me. And how that all figures into whether you continue to burn coal, how much do you rely on gasoline, fuel motor vehicles, and do you go to you know more alternative-fueled vehicles? Uh, so I think fracking has to be looked at in the context of a sort of a broader energy policy. And a, and a world energy policy obviously has to take into account where energy comes from and how it gets produced. Uh, Secretary Clinton, U.S. Secretary of State Clinton, uh, made an announcement with the African nations uh, in Rio 
where the United States State Department and the uh, OPIC, which is the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, are going to make monies available to countries in Africa to find ways to bring more energy to people in countries in the African continent. Right now, 25% of Africans have access to electricity. 25%. I mean, do you know anybody in the United States that doesn't have access to electricity? So they're going to help the African countries find ways to, from a technology standpoint, figure out a way to use hydro hydropower and solar power in Africa where the annual sunshine over all the countries in Africa is 325 days a year. They need investments to get though the suppliers and the manufacturers into their country to help develop the power sources. They need the distribution system to get the power from where the power is generated out into the communities where the people live and find a way to do that and, and that it's it's affordable for folks, and obviously that all requires investment. And so fracking is sort of the same thing. To the extent that we're exporting natural gas, should we would we export natural gas to Africa or some other part of the world where energy is less abundant or less available to allow those countries to grow in a, in a sustainable way, uh, but do so with a clean energy source that was derived in a environmentally friendly way. You've touched on the the media reports that were critical of the conference, and I've seen a good number of reports about how people have been disappointed with this document. And the reason I think people are disappointed is, the, the reason this was called Rio Plus 20 is the first conference on sustainable development was held in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. And then a commitment was made in 92 that we will have a 10-year plan to implement the things that were agreed to. When I say we, I mean the U.N., Agreed to in Rio, we'll have another conference in 2002, and that was held in Johannesburg, South Africa. And there, a sort of a snapshot was taken of what has been done since 1992, what, what's left to be done, and another document was agreed to in Johannesburg in 2002. So people coming into Rio had expectations that there's been commitments made in two different world conferences in 92 and in 2002. Then we get to Rio in 2012, one would think that, A, we have done a lot more than we have to implement all the things that have been agreed to in the prior 10-year conferences. And number two, that what comes out of Rio should be a broader, more definitive commitment to make sure that what's being agreed to is going to be implemented. Now, as part of what was adopted at the conference, a 10-year plan to implement what was agreed to in Rio plus 20 was also adopted. It's right now just a framework, but again, taking the Secretary General at his word, it's sustainable development is his top priority. You know, I would give him the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, show me that what you as a leader of the UN, the Secretary General, can uh, lead the leaders of the world along to see to it that they meet the commitments that they agreed to. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton told the Rio conference, quote, in the 21st century, the only viable development is sustainable development. She said, I pledge my country, the Obama administration, and my own personal efforts to continue our work together. We simply cannot afford to fail. Many, many government world leaders said very similar things in Rio. And I think the people who are responding negatively to Rio Plus 20 are saying, look, we've been looking at this thing for 20 years. The UN's been talking about it for 20 years. There hasn't been a lot of progress made. What makes us believe that all the world leaders get together in Rio and say, yes, we will do what we said all along we're going to do, and we'll do some new things. What makes us believe that they're going to do something now that they've never done before? 
it's the United Nations. It's not, you know. You know my, one of my mentors at EPA, I worked at the U.S. EPA for 16 years, and I was left EPA as a deputy regional administrator here in Atlanta. One of my mentors and friends in EPA was Lee Thomas, who was the administrator of EPA. And Lee always made a point when he was making speeches and people would ask him questions about, you know, we're cleaning up this kind of pollution or that kind of pollution, and, you know, we're not there yet. We haven't fixed the problem altogether. And Lee would always say, in the context of what the question was about, he would say, look, let's be sure we don't forget all the gains we've made, all the progress we've made over whatever period of time we've been working on this problem. And I don't stand before you today to say we've got it fixed yet, but it's not. we're still not at zero. We're a long way from zero to where we need to be. So from that standpoint, I try to be an optimist here. I'm a lawyer within, you know, as a, and I went there as a delegate from the ABA. I want to take the organization, meaning the UN, at its word that if they all, the member countries, signed on to a document, just like a treaty would be, for example, and said they're going to do things, I have to trust that why would anybody agree to something if they had no intention of ever doing it? Why would the Secretary of State say what she said if she didn't mean it? So I have to take people at their word, and as a lawyer, what we will do in the ABA is examine the commitments that we as lawyers can make a difference in and move forward with some policy in our House of Delegates uh, over the next year or two to see if we can find a way to help bring more stability to sustainable development around the world. The American Bar Association has rule of law offices located all over the world already. They've been around, they've been in the world for 15, 20 years. You know, we're going to use that mechanism to help countries, be they developed or undeveloped or developing, to make progress. That's all I can choose to do. And I guess, too, the thing is, the efforts are continuing, the discussions are continuing, and and as long as they are, that still can be considered progress, no matter how slow it may be. That's exactly right. I mean, that's kind of what Lee Thomas said. And the other thing, one, one, another administrator who was also a mentor to me was uh, Bill Riley. He gave a speech one time that was called, uh, I forget the, t- the title, was something like High Hurdling Through Expectations, which meant when you set expectations that you know you can achieve or make you, str- you, know, make you stretch yourself outside your comfort zone to get to. But if we in the environmental world set expectations you know, that there'll be zero pollution in the world, well, then that's not an expectation we can ever meet immediately or certainly within not in within several years. And not terribly realistic. And not realistic. And so if that's the expectation, then every time you're judged on whether you met your goal, you'll always be shown as having failed. So set goals you believe are realistic and, and you know, realistic and some stretching involved and work hard to get there. And again, back to what I said before, I shook the Secretary General's hand in, in a brief, you know, few seconds, you know, going down the line, shaking hands kind of thing. But I heard him speak. I saw him speak. I saw him in person. I shook his hand. I got to believe that if he says he's going to do something, that he will do his best to see it happens. Now, whether he accomplishes that, the test of time will tell. But uh, for now, I went to Rio wanting to see the people that were there, talk to people that were there, understand what their goals are. I didn't meet anyone there from any organization who wasn't committed fully to the goal of sustainable development. And everyone who, you know, those people all traveled to Rio de Janeiro from all over the world to be there came there for a reason. They all wanted to come together for a common goal, and I think that's what they did, and and the document came out of it. But again, you know, when the document's only adopted by the governments and not by the people, there's always going to be criticism that the document could be a better document. Yeah, sure. Mr. DeHines, uh, give me uh, your final thoughts, if you would, on Rio Plus 20 and, and the future of sustainable development. 
obviously the concept of sustainable development has been around for a number of years. Uh, it first emerged in a UN commission report that came out in the late 1980s. There's been three world summits on it now. It is ingrained in every country in the world's thought process. I mentioned earlier the, you know, the, the, the world markets and, and what corporations are doing. So I think I'm optimistic that sustainable development as a concept is here to stay. I'm of the belief that in time, everybody working together can achieve that. I mean, I've been an environmental law practitioner for 38 years, and I've seen a tremendous amount of change in my 38 years of practicing law. I started in 1974. A number of the federal statutes that are in place today that didn't even exist, and the Superfund statute wasn't passed until 1980. Uh, so I was already working for EPA six years before that. So I've seen a tremendous amount of change. I mean, just you know, look around wherever it is you live, and look at how many uh, toll you know toll lanes we have, and look at recycling, and look at children being taught environmental science in you know, early grades in school. So I'm optimistic for the future. I'm optimistic by nature, and I just think that uh, we've got a lot of work to do, and if we all commit to do it, it can be done. We've made a lot of progress in the last 40 years almost that I've been practicing law as an environmental lawyer, and I'm, I'm of the view that we can make a lot of progress in the next 40 years. Well, Mr. DeHines, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure having you with us, and appreciate your insights on all this. Thank you. You're welcome. Lee DeHines of Austin and Bird in Atlanta. Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis legal podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities. Like the communities on Facebook. Follow them on Twitter. The LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast. Copyright 2012 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. All rights reserved.